opposing the, the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised that that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent whatsoever. We know who the hard left who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. Hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation without compensation. Hard left wing position. Hard left, the 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 hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the 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 hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, left, People ask what's good about popularism, it's like not the music, or like the music isn't, hasn't got anything to do with like why he's sick. I don't know though, because for me there's this contradiction that's a big part of what Bob Dylan is, which is that he rejects this poet label. He kind of says, no, I'm a song and dance man, that's his phrase. Mm -hmm. he, said, he says that the music is as important a part of his work as the lyrics. The music is the context for his words, his thoughts, his, his view of the world. But at the same time, he considers the music not necessarily an afterthought, but malleable, disposable, changeable, really. He, he kind of... Uh, he sees music as this thing which just can... It keeps evolving every time it's played. Um, and so, like, you're, he might be playing some chords and then for, like, a fucking Bing Crosby song from the 1940s. And then he's got Spirit on the Water from Modern Times. And I figure that that's kind of, like, how he, how he works. One of the very and, best, and, like, 21st century Dylan songs, I would say. Yeah, I love that song. And um, that's how... Uh, it's, really, it's really fun to play, by the way. I've got my guitar here for, like, that, but I'm... <laughs> Yeah, oh, fuck. Well, I've forgotten it, but. <laughs> But it's fair, it's fair, there's not too many chords, but the chord changes are so quick, and it's yeah, 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 yeah. It's a much, much more like refined kind of music than than his straight up folk stuff. Oh, I think like yeah. all of his music is really accomplished pretty much. Definitely. Like, and, and I love the different versions of every song, like from the tour, and like I guess that's what everyone hates about going to see him live. But. It is about the changeability of the music and like getting to play it like the band, like whatever band he's playing with, he's going to like come out with a different setting of the words and he's going to change yeah. the words a lot as well. He does <laughs> change the words as well. That's what, but yeah, yeah, do you remember when we talked about when I saw Bob Dylan at Hyde yeah, Park last year yeah. and Emmett, like you, you were at that show as well. Like, so you, I'll ask you what, what you thought of that in a sec. But like I was saying to Yair, like he changes the arrangements and the music of the songs 
but then he also changes the lyrics so like nothing is sacred in Bob Dylan's songs Um, you look at something like Tangled Up in Blue I've heard so many different permutations of that not just lyrically but musically as well I think that one kind of like became sort of fixed at a point but not not entirely it's still like the odd verse will change something like I swear Simple Twist of Fate when I saw him Mm-hmm. had a whole new set of lyrics mm-hmm. but presumably written around 2019 um and that song always changes That's, i think the blood on the tracks yeah he was maybe. singing about the coronavirus and stuff like that on the <laughs> <laughs> what he predicted it he he like no i'm just trying, like he changes he like throws in like topical <laughs> bars or whatever uh, about, like... yeah, yeah. one of the things in uh, <laughs> simple twist of fate is like you should have met me back in 58 <laughs> like that's that turned up sometime in the last few years and mm. feels like a very old person addition to uh, sort of young yeah youngish 30s man song so yeah we're talking today on the real politic podcast about our man Bob Dylan. This is a kind of birthday party for Dylan. He turned 79 today. Or he was when we recorded this. Now he's 80. Happy birthday, Bob. We didn't actually know this. We just agreed to record today and it happened to like sync up with We, with, we uh, planned Bob's this birthday. all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, like so many uh, parties thrown in celebration of Mr. Dylan, I don't think he'll be turning up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to be talking not just about Bob, the great musician, but specifically about his 2003 foray into filmmaking. But he didn't direct it, he wrote and starred in it Masked and Anonymous. Directed by Larry Charles, a man with a pretty impressive resume, but still a man who you think, wow, he's, uh, he directed this. Director of Borat, Bruno for Sasha Baron Cohen, a longtime writer and producer on Seinfeld, and then carrying on his collaboration with Larry David, Kirby Enthusiasm. Um, is there anything else Larry, Larry Charles has done? I know he's been on Chapo. Maybe we could get him on. <laughs> he made this film uh, religious with Bill Maher. Oh, yeah! Shit, he made a fucking shitty uh, atheist documentary with Bill Maher. Yeah. Wow. So, he, yeah, he's done all kinds of stuff. So, who on this film is Rene Fontaine, uh, or whatever, and who is Sergei Petrov, the two authors of, of this film's screenplay? Because they are, in reality, uh, Larry Charles and Bob Dylan. Okay, Bob Dylan is Sergei Petrov, and Larry Charles is Rene Fontaine. The, the the two writers of this film i like to think um dylan is the uh the russian one but he's doing, <laughs> he's doing the opposite of the russian trolls because he's like a western person who's assuming uh <laughs> russian alias it just makes me think of the two russian guys who gapes murdered uh with a, a knife point in the russian baths in uh for vegas episode of gatecast victor sangiev and um Salman Hashmikov. <laughs> <laughs> so this film was produced by the BBC uh, and Intermedia Films. It was distributed by Sony Pictures Classics because it's a classic, and it's produced by Jeff Rosen, who's Bob Dylan's manager, um, a real Bob Whisperer, one of one of his closest people. 
And um, yeah, it's got a very uh, short Wikipedia page, Jeff Rosen. Well, it does say, to be fair, the one reference is American Roots music behind the scenes. I mean, talk about behind the scenes. He's master anonymous, you know, he's an enigma. Like the man himself. Jeff Rosen became Dylan's manager, it says, in 1989. So that's a year into the never-ending tour. So he's pretty much shepherded Dylan through most of this period of renewal for him. Uh, creative, creatively speaking, maybe personally speaking, I, I can't speak for Bob. <laughs> so this this film, have you, have you heard Larry Charles be interviewed about this movie? No. There's a good interview on YouTube where Larry Charles talks about how he was approached by Bob to do a slapstick comedy series for HBO, mm-hmm. which would be written by and star Bob. And uh, it would be, you know, half hour episodes. And Larry Charles basically said to Bob, like, fucking HBO are not going to say no to you. They don't have the balls. So they went down to the HBO office. And until this point, Bob had been super into this idea. Like, apparently he was obsessed with Jerry Lewis. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he had been just, like, on his tour bus with his hundred dates he does a year. He had been just watching every movie that Jerry Lewis ever did on the tour bus, basically. Um, apparently Bob spends a lot of time just, like, watching old movies. And, yeah, you, you can get a lot of film references in his songs. He, he is a bit of a... Maybe of a sure. certain... I think, yeah, maybe film-like music there's a bit of a cut-off point with bob where he's his knowledge isn't quite so encyclopedic like i don't know if i've ever heard him cover a song released after 1995 which by the way was warren zevon's mutineer which warren zevon released in 1995 and bob covered in 2002 along with a series of other zevon songs because zevon was terminally ill um, he went to see Bob and Bob played three of his songs and they continued playing them throughout his 2002 tour uh, which incidentally I think is with you know around the time that this was filmed and was with the band that appears with Bob in Masked and Anonymous Some might sink but we will Grab your Let's get out of here But where were we? Um, (laughs) Bob and Larry Charles went to see the HBO bigwigs. And one of the guys said, Hey, Bob, I have the original ticket for Woodstock. And Bob was just like, he gave him a death stare and he was just like, I wasn't at Woodstock. And then he, like, walked over into the corner of the room and for the entire meeting had his back to to the HBO executives. And Larry Charles had to pitch the whole thing to them. And they still said yes to the Bob Dylan half-hour slapstick comedy Jerry Lewis-inspired Larry Charles collaboration series. And um, obviously I'd I'd watch it. Oh, it would have been so good, man. (laughs) <laughs> I really, I really think. I guess it's because he he reached out to Larry Charles because of Seinfeld or maybe like early Curb, if he caught yeah. it. But it would really suit like 
the screen persona that I associate with Bob Dylan, especially based off this film. But apparently he didn't like it, right? Um, he didn't like what? Apparently he didn't, he didn't want it. Well, clearly, like, they wanted to make a mysterious sort of political thriller film like Martin Anonymous instead. So Yeah. <laughs> so Larry Charles says that he and Bob and Jeff Rosen, who we've established, Bob's manager, who had gone to produce this film, they went into the elevator and Jeff and Larry were ecstatic. They'd managed to somehow just swindle these <laughs> fucking corporate bigwigs into giving them a load of money to do this absolute madness. And then Bob was just like, you know, I, I don't want to do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, Larry thinks that this is because the HBO executives had just made Bob um, with that one comment. He'd, he'd been like, fuck these phony people. I don't wow. want to fucking do this. Um, it, there's a similar story related to Bob Dylan, uh, the great Lucinda Williams, when she was, uh, I think it was when she was recording a classic, either the Sweet Old World, World album or the Car Wheels on a Gravel Road album, which came out in the 90s, and both of them had these just arduous, protracted recording and um, release processes where they just went through all these different labels and stuff and w- at one point Lucinda Williams went to this uh, record label and they were all like yeah you're great we're gonna give you this deal and then uh, she was kind of like well you know I want my album to sound like Blonde on Blonde and the record e- record executive was like oh Blonde on Blonde um, is that a band? Uh, and she was like, fuck this, and just like, <laughs> just complete walked out of the contract um, because this guy didn't have sufficient knowledge of Bob Dylan and she wasn't going to work for someone like that. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. I've had those similar, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this person is a clown. Uh, so, Bob, for whatever reason, I thought that HBO were involved in this picture, but I, I, I guess not. It says the BBC produced it. Oh, license fees. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, maybe some chumps in Britain will fund this. <laughs> Let's go on and talk about this film, because it's uh, just Dylan kind of like... It's like one of his songs, but in a different medium. You know, maybe the music really is <laughs> important to, to the whole thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was going to say, like... It does feel like a Dylan song. It has all these like characters with crazy names. Um, yeah. You know, and there's like people talking about you know all these like spiritual themes and all like the ghosts of American music walking around. But it's kind of you start the song and maybe like every time you come out of the song you take something different from it. There's so much going on. <laughs> there's so many ideas. In Definitely. the way you would hope a script written by Bob Dylan using his Russian alias would end up. <laughs> He's up there, you know, with like Tolstoy and uh, Dostoevsky and Viktor Sangiev, um, <laughs> Putin great 69, all the great Russian wordsmiths. <laughs> In terms of how this film was written... I think this was carried over because the idea that Larry Charles mentions in this uh, appears in the film. I think this was carried over from the slapstick project to the 
much more serious film. Dylan apparently chain smoking away in the meeting. Bob Dylan smokes? What? You never be able to. You never think that from his silky smooth dulcet tones. <laughs> Dylan brought out this very own. By the way, I love like in the Tempest album, like there's a picture of his Bob of Bob and his band looking like just like uh, uh, some kind of ragtag mob faction. Bob's just puffing a big cigar. <laughs> him and his band all dress in such like an old timey like cowboy kind of way uh, it's, it's, it's such an archaic uh, image yeah apparently Dylan brought out this very ornate beautiful box like a sorcerer would according to Larry Charles and he opens the box and dumps all these pieces of scrap paper on the table and every piece of scrap paper was a hotel stationery, little scraps from Norway and from Belgium and Brazil and places like that, and each little piece of paper had a line, like some kind of little line scribbled or a name scribbled. Uncle Sweetheart. There you go, we'll t- talk about right. him in a minute. Or a weird poetic line or an idea or whatever, and he was like, I don't know what to do with all this. And for some reason I was able to go, uh... You know you can take this, this is a line, this is the character, and the character would say this line, and then, yeah, that turned into Masculine Anonymous, the screenplay, which, Emmett, you have read! Well, (laughs) yeah, I got it on, uh, you know, how you can download, like, subtitles for films, so just to brush up for for recording the episode, I watched the film about a week ago, but Mm. you're watching it without the soundtrack right now, I wanted to really get, like, the sort of fragmentary experience like one angle on a Dylan song and it kind of worked it worked pretty well just reading the poetry reading the lyrics um forgetting about who is saying them or what the images on the screen look like which is kind of the less inspiring part of the film some of these lines sound pretty awkward coming out of people's mouths and what mouths there's a (laughs) dazzling array of stars in this film who all took huge pay cuts, I imagine, against their pay cuts. Yeah, they, they. I think they've got paid scale. Yeah. Union standard union wage for this. Yeah. Um, Bob Dylan as Jack Fate, obviously. So Bob Dylan as a producer of his own records, he is Jack Frost. Clearly likes the name Jack. Can't think why. It's got terrible associations. <laughs> then Jeff Bridges plays Tom Friend. Penelope Cruz plays friend's significant other pagan lace. <laughs> John Goodman plays the aforementioned Uncle Sweetheart. Uh, sorry, Jack, I think you mean Austin Powers. Oh, yeah, he's, so he's wearing just some ridiculous garbs in this, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. oh my god. Yeah. And he's like the first character who shows up, isn't he? Yeah. You've got Jessica Lang as Nina Veronica, Luke Wilson as Bobby Cupid, Angela Bassett as Mistress, Stephen Bauer as Edgar, Michael Paul Chan as Guard. I I, admit, I don't actually know who that is. But, um, Bruce Dern, the legendary Bruce Dern, as editor. Now we're newspaper- talking. Yeah, a newspaper editor rather like uh, that played by Eddie Marson in Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman. <laughs> Although he doesn't fuck a pig, actually, Bruce Dern. Ed Harris as uh, Oscar Vogel. Interesting sequence. We'll talk about it later. 
yeah, we can get to Ed Harris. Val Kilmer as Animal Wrangler, an extremely interesting title drop sequence. <laughs> Cheech Marin as Prospero. He was great. No books in sight. He was great. Chris Penn as Crew Guy number two. Giovanni Ribisi as Soldier. Mickey Rourke as Edmund, the brother of Bob Dylan's character. Was he his Richard... brother? He was, yeah, he was his brother. I was trying to work out Rich... the... Yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, you were trying to work out the, the Couldn't work out their relationship. It's really uh, just because of the ages, you know, because I know Mickey Rourke is way younger than Bob Dylan, but he looks about yeah. the same age. <laughs> um. <laughs> he looks uh, indeterminate age but um those two those two characters are brothers but they are estranged because yeah. edmund mickey rourke's character is a stooge for the regime headed up by richard c seraphian as president the father of dylan and rourke's characters <laughs> i love it he looks like Saddam Hussein <laughs> and a bit like Majuro. <laughs> and he's put up again. He's put up on the walls of this town, which I guess it was all shot in like downtown LA. But they put up the like fake Saddam posters, like <laughs> everywhere. How did he sire Bob Dylan and Mickey Rourke? Like, was there a kind of like? Uh, Mia Farrow household kind of like constant stream of adoptions thing sort of <laughs> happening you know <laughs> um, this also has Susan Tyrell who it turns out is not Susie Tyrell from E Street Band uh, as Ella the Fortune Teller Christian Slater as Crew Guy Number One Fred Ward as Drunk and Robert Wisdom as Lucius so that's that's the cast. That's the entire cast. Maybe there's some, someone who's uncredited there. I don't know. It seems like everyone and their monkey is in this. I guess I, it's I, more I, about the uh, Dylan-esque character names than the people themselves. Even you know that sounds like yeah the first page of like the cast list for a Dylan song. Although there is an uncredited appearance from Tinashe, uh, R&B <laughs> R&B singer of Two One fame from a few years ago really she, yeah she's in this yeah she is the uh little girl who sings the times they are oh yeah well, that's tinashi yeah. <laughs> okay that dude that's crazy i didn't know that that's the cameo also not credited on wikipedia although credited in the end credits of the film uh, as they play a lovely rendition of blowing in the wind with powerful three-part harmonies bob dylan's band at the time consisting of, on guitar, Charlie Sexton, who left in 2002 and had left by the time this film came out, but rejoined in 2009 and has been with Bob ever since, apart from a brief absence in 2013. Absolutely um, brilliant guitarist, man. Um, great guitarist, good actor. Yeah, and supposedly he was like a teen sort of superstar, like pop singer, who then went on to have like super authentic career as Bob Dylan's guitarist. Yeah, I think he just he just loves it. You know, yeah, I think sick. he must just have the maximum respect for Bob because like he's a he can be a flashy guitarist, but he's not in Bob's band. You he, know, he's been like the best thing about seeing 
a Bob Dylan show for me a couple of times. Some of the some of the guitar playing, I think, is amazing. He's great. I mean, I love Bob's current band with, with Donny Heron and Heavy mm. Steel, and the connective tissue, other than Charlie Sexton, between Bob's current band and that one is, of course, Tony Garnier on bass, who has been Bob's bassist without exception since 1989. Gee. Bob's bassist in the first year of the never-ending tour, he had some health issues. He had to leave the tour. He recovered, he asked Bob to come back to a band, and Bob was like, you know, i kind of got a good band at the moment, man. I don't really want to change mm. it up. <laughs> so basically then, uh, 1989, Tony Garnier joined Bob Dylan's band as bass player on both electric and upright bass, and he has been basically the rock of the whole Dylan enterprise. He plays on all Bob's uh, studio recordings, since Time Out of Mind in 97. He plays on every every Dylan show for, for 30 straight years and has become the musical director of Bob's band. The two of them put the set list together and determine the arrangements, um, a role that at the start of the never-ending tour was occupied by the guitarist G. Smith. Also in this lineup of the band is Larry Campbell, a great musician uh, who will go on to play with Levon Helm from the band, another Dylan collaborator and then when Levon died would take over Levon's studio. Larry Campbell's a brilliant musician like he played pedal steel and banjo for Bob. Oh shit Tinashe is on screen right now. <laughs> yeah fuck I can kind of see the resemblance yeah. Wow. Uh, as well as Tinashe obviously the real highlight of Bob Dylan's band at that time. <laughs> you, you had uh, George Roselli on drums. So it was a tight five-piece band. Bob at that point played guitar um, for the most part. Although actually 2002 he would switch to keyboards uh, basically and has primarily played keyboards ever since. He plays guitar in the musical performances in this film. That was the uh, year of the switch. Yeah, <clears throat> and they are great performances. Mm. I mean, maybe uh, maybe for me Bob Dylan, late, late period, I guess late period Bob is an acquired taste but for me these performances absolutely smoke. Um, I know the performance of Dixie is disparaged in the Bob Dylan encyclopedia, but for me it's it's charming. Although, you know, there is obviously it's, it's loaded connotations to playing Dixie right, <laughs> really in any circumstances. But with Larry Campbell and Charlie Sexton's harmonies and the great stripped back sound of the band with uh, uh, George Roselli playing drums, I think playing with brushes on uh, like a cardboard box, like, you know, that and the other traditional folk song in, in the film Diamond Joe were really charming performances, I think. Yeah, it's interesting how he threw those ones in here. Talking about the band, I feel like listening to a lot of post-90s Dylan, you are listening to the band a lot more and the arrangements and leads are more interesting than you get on like classic Dylan music or even the more exploratory 80s material that everyone loves dearly. But I guess this film is like centered around a concert, a relief concert, and even though you only get one tune of the concert, you get like a few rehearsals. Dixie is, yeah, yeah. is a really weird one. Um, <laughs> but What do you think that was about? Well, I think a lot of the film is about Dylan trying to like divorce himself from politics, you know, like there's politics going on, there's crazy politics, there's like fascists and there's like uprisings and this and that, but Bob doesn't mind like just playing live version or something like Dixie. I don't know, it's weird because 
I don't know why he's, you know, Blind, Blind Willie Mattel is on the soundtrack and he has like the confrontation with the Ed Harris like blackface ghost character. Yeah. <laughs> it's, he's trying to paint a picture, you know, and I think he is trying to talk about this thing of like inheriting, you know, black music or like interpreting black music. Not inheriting, but I don't know what the right word is for what Bob Dylan does to the history of American music. Well, maybe you can mention that article about um, the film and minstrelsy and so on. And this is what they say in this book by. Ian Bell, Time Out of Mind, The Lives of Bob Dylan. Dylan has packed one corner of the film with allusions to one great civil war, an Abraham Lincoln impersonator and the ghost of a blackface minstrel turned up. Dixie is played and asks himself why another conflagration is out of the question. There's another bit where they mention the blackface part, actually. Um, yeah, there we go, they get into the reviews. Equally, the possibility that tiny roles were sometimes crucial was not considered by busy reviewers. A common reaction to Ed Harris playing the ghost of Vogel, the blackface minstrel, was expressed by the San Francisco Chronicle's man in the free seats. Why? I don't know, said the critic helpfully. It's best not to think about it. The picture might have made a bit more sense had the cineast bothered to do his job. Yeah, okay. I thought that maybe they they had actually offered an alternate explanation there. Uh, okay, here we go. I think they do earlier in the yeah. So they go. You do come across uh, these like problematic moments, extremely problematic moments like that in a normal Dylan song. But I think when you're yeah. when yes. you're confronted with the image on screen, when you've got. Bob Dylan singing Dixie like straightforwardly in like a kind of bluegrass arrangement. Totally faithful, yeah. like, seemingly unironic rendition. Um, and he plays it well, you know. It's a nice version of the Confederate anthem, I guess. Yeah, man. I think the Bob Dylan encyclopedia was way off when they said it was a dreadful performance. <laughs> but in Time Out of Mind, the lives of Bob Dylan, they talk. They say uh, this about the blackface scene starring Ed Harris. Which, I gotta say, when I was younger, I think I had the instinctive re uh, reaction of just like, Whoa, dude, this is nuts. Whoa, how crazy and out of the box. But, I mean, I, I'm willing to believe that there was some kind of thought behind it rather than being just Bob like, What about, uh, wouldn't it blow people's minds, you know, if we just had a guy in blackface? Uh, just like <laughs> in between tokes or whatever. Uh, Oscar Vogel, it says... The ghost of a blackface minstrel who opened his mouth once too often, Vogel is the German word for bird, yeah, I, don't, I think that's a reach, uh, makes the obvious statement, the whole world is a stage. The Bob Dylan we think of, we think we know is meanwhile both a performer and a performance. Mm. Yeah, but where, where's the, like, bit about minstrelsy and how that plays into fucking Bob Dylan's whole thing? Yeah, it seemed like the author of that book could rather just blast Dylan listeners and critics for not understanding what was in that very impenetrable scene than preferring his own explanation. Maybe I just... It's just there, I guess, you know. It's, it's writ large on the screen. Especially, yeah, I think that's straight after hearing the famous Lost Haunted Dylan song Blind William McTell where he's singing about slaves. Yeah, a great um, song. A great song, but, you know, that... They, the Ed Harris character says he was Bob Dylan's dad, like, or Jack Fate's dad, the fascist dictators. 
favourite entertainer and then he challenged him on stage. Hey man, he, he's a barfist. He's, he's an old right. fascist. Right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's uh, uh, a sh- chavismo. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if it's like, uh, I don't know where in like Central to South America the state that we're in in this film is based on. But I guess it's also one of those like duck soup Z fictional things. But that minstrel scene is a really difficult and weird moment. But I think for Bob Dylan to put so much weight on it, especially being like the thing he sees just before he goes on stage in this like benefit concert. He's clearly trying to like tell a really complicated story in relation to his own music and how he's adapted like black music. There was a book which would predate Bob Dylan's 2001 album, which is Love and Theft, uh, stylized in quotation marks. Love and Theft, the book, had minstrelsy in the title. Yeah, Love and a, Theft, it's a book about blackface minstrelsy yeah. and the American working class. And apparently this is all kind of about how the American folk tradition has extensively borrowed from and repurposed effectively black culture in America, mm-hmm. which Bob Dylan's done a lot of. Yeah, and that's a big thing, I think, because, you know, he's playing a uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson's guitar in this film, but I don't think you could <laughs> say that, like, Mississippi Delta blues music and, like, real foundations of, like, his form inform like Bob Dylan's 60s music in the way that like Woody Guthrie and like the folk music that he would have been hearing on the radio it's not as like writ large as an influence it's only in the 80s 90s and now when it comes back around to being way more in the like grand scope of American like recorded music going back to like Lomax and stuff. Alan Lomax I think is a big part of this conversation he's a kind of folk music historian wasn't he? He made a lot of black artists a lot more well known but at the same time he had this kind of paternalistic attitude to them Mm -hmm. well that's Um, why he's the name that's cited over any of the artists he recorded (laughs) well exactly yeah um which uh, i just did sorry no no you're (laughs) right but yeah i mean to be to be fair you've taught you've mentioned blind lemon jefferson and blind willie mctell but you know i mean like bob dylan didn't mention any of those people in the 60s I would say to be in Bob's defense, I think in the early 60s before he shifted to the original material, he did actually cover a load of those songs. And and I think the influence was slightly more pronounced. You know, In My Time of Dying, the song that Led Zeppelin would later... uh, cover but <laughs> as, as, as an original which again like let's not single out Led Zeppelin for this because Bob has done that a bunch of times but when the levee breaks there you go but, but that's an interesting thing they both um, had one of those very first album in my time of dying is is covered Mm -hmm. which was a a blues song i can't remember who wrote it let's let's look it up and then yeah that song would be reworked into a kind of a quote-unquote original by led zeppelin a few years later led zeppelin would also write a quote-unquote original song called uh, when the levee breaks 
uh, and Bob Dylan would, in 2006, on Modern Times, have a quote-unquote original song called The Levee's Gonna Break. <laughs> which are literally just the, the same song which was written by... Uh, hang on, I'm looking up In My Time of Dying first. In My Time of Dying is a traditional song, so people, people aren't entirely sure who, who wrote it. It's apparently a biblically-influenced... Charlie Patton recorded it. That's probably where Bob got it from because he cited Charlie Patton as a great blues man. He's one of his biggest influences. That, that album also I, had the classic I, Rolling and Tumbling of Muddy Waters. Oh, yeah. Charlie Patton, in fact, Bob would name-check him on um, the song High Water for Charlie Patton. So this is, uh, this is the time he was really fascinated with that heritage more than ever, I feel, when he was tapping in. I guess World Gone Wrong yeah. is another album to bring in, his like, sort of covers, adaptations album. And for the first more than a decade, Never Ending Tour, covers were a constant fixture in Dylan's live sets, of traditional stuff and more contemporary songs as well. Ranging from, you know, just beautiful renditions of these fun songs I'd never have heard if it wasn't for Dylan, to just like a really incoherent, drunk sounding, shambolic rendition of Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark from 1990, which is easily one of the worst pop recordings I've heard. But um, the folk stuff, or like his covers of Warren Zevon and, and uh, uh, Don Henley, he does an incredible version of Don Henley's The End of the Innocence, which is a song I would never give the time of day if didn't have covered it. Um, or Richard Thompson. Yeah, I was going to say, you sent What's me that, that song 1952 Vincent Black Lightning. Um, a, a brilliant song off a yeah. pretty bad pop rock album in the Richard Thompson oeuvre, but thanks for sending me that cover because uh, it, I think it was a request and it was kind of a he did it one time that cover but it's yeah. an yeah. unbelievable yeah, a... like Dylan S English folk rock ballad yeah <laughs> he turns it into one of his own like when he's like I fought with the law since I was 17 and he, do, he does the thing where his voice rises at the end of the line and I'll see the cause and the rain He can still sing in pitch, you know. There's a limit, limited amount of notes. He just uh, chooses not to. That's that's what we always get, you know. That's what, that's what upsets the, you know. That Guardian review of the Bob Dylan concert last year that was so upset and melty because he didn't. Even though I feel like 
at that show specifically, he played very faithfully Ballad of a Thin Man, a lot of classic tunes at the spot. Yeah. But the Guardian journalist couldn't handle it. Yeah, so you, you saw that show. Couldn't like, hack as well. the musical exploration from the 75-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was Me, a great, it was a great show. Both of us were not going to miss the Bob Dylan, Neil Young co-headlining show. It was great. Yeah, no, I, I, I really loved it. I mean, obviously, Neil's set was great, but, like, Bob's... Uh, I thought it was as close as you're going to come to a crowd-pleasing Bob Dylan show. Like, the fucking big screens were actually on. Admittedly, it was a static shot of Bob at his piano, but, like, <laughs> come on. Uh, I, to be fair, I thought that was a bit of a dick move against his band, but his band would say themselves, well, it's not about us, we're there to support our, our man. But, um... He had you know, the audience in the palm of his hand, you know, he was dancing. <laughs> he was loving it. He, he was, was smiling away. <laughs> Did you remember during Like a Rolling Stone when he was like, come on everybody now. <laughs> <laughs> like he was literally leading a sing-along. Like how often do you see that from Dylan? And, and the set list also, because I guess he maybe, who knows when he recorded his new album, but it, you know, he doesn't play new songs until they're released. Mm-hmm. It was a very hit-laden set. Admittedly, he was still for some reason playing early Roman kings from uh, Tempest. Yeah, you but hate the that other tune, Tempest. Don't you? I don't hate it. It's just it's literally just da 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 da. You can't even have a go at Bob for stealing that melody because it's not even stealing because it's just like stock stock blues music. I mean, fuck man, anything his band play is like well played music. But uh, and his lyrics on that song are good as well. But it, you know, it, I feel. I feel like it's just not a song where where the, the, the good lyrics are ever really like highlighted. It's just a bit kind of barked out, and the music's not very exciting. The rough and rowdy ways recordings thus far, though, have been Fuck. really sick band music. Very uh, oh, man. responding show, to the content of the tune. They show how versatile his band is as well, because the first two were these very spectral arrangements, and then you get what's it called false prophet which again melody completely stolen from some r&b blues kind of tune and it's just a great like rocking arrangement band sounds so good charlie sexton will obviously play on it and you can hear donny heron playing pedal steel on it he's a multi-instrumentalist for bob now as well as just pedal steel guitarist but bob's new second guitarist bob Britt plays on it i don't think Stu kimball has played on a bob dylan album in a couple of years he was in his band for, for quite a long time until 2018 and again the new drummer Matt Chamberlain is on it because George Rochelle finally parted ways with Bob in 2018 so he's, he's actually he's had a little bit of a shake up of his band lineup in the last couple of years which for like all of the 2000s basically was the same band like easily his most steady lineup but I mean it's hard to beat when it comes to Bob's bands the Garnier Sexton Campbell Richelli combo which plays in the recordings of Maston Anonymous like there's killer versions of Down in the Flood from the Basement Tapes oh yeah and, uh, and Cold Iron's Bound great song from Time Out of Mind and Drifter's Escape as well that new version is uh, really really great yeah, it's, it's a shame that, yeah, they don't let that one, that was actually a, a live staple for Bob in the late 90s and early 2000s, mm. it? it's a shame that they don't let that version of the song like play out in its entirety, but, like I said, there are soundboard recordings of people that, that are really good from that time with that band. Do you think Bob Dylan's ever going to get around to doing bootleg series about the never-ending tour? 
But he's got more than enough material. Yeah, exactly. He's got <laughs> months and years worth of material of just sound, that's... soundboard recordings. But I feel like he's doing even more with the like arrangements these days than yeah, he definitely. was like on the Rolling Thunder review, where like they go out and every tune kind of ends up sounding the same. I feel like at this point in time, like his band. Uh, in the two, in 2002, they were actually playing quite faithful arrangements of a lot of his songs, and um, that you know, in a, and it was great. Like a lot of the time, I don't want them to Dylan's band because it's just you know, you're not going to recapture the moment of the original recording. Nowadays, they don't play a, probably a part of the fact that they had quite standard arrangements in those days, which resembled the originals, was because they, he played so many songs live. Since yeah, 2013, sure. the set lists have become a lot more focused. A lot more static. And I mean, I, I'd complain, but they're such good shows. Really feels like there's a, a kind of, a, like a through line to them. It's a, it's a classy evening's entertainment. I don't know when I said this before on Bob's uh, <laughs> about Bob, but I definitely have. It's just like, you know, it's a real like fucking tight machine. His his band and his show at this point in time. I think it was the Sinatra <laughs> covers era that really did that to formalize like the nice evening's entertainment, as you say. I mean, I've seen them do that on that tour. Definitely, and I wasn't yeah. Missing I... any tunes, you know. So yeah, I saw him in 2017, and it was great. I I loved that show, but at the same time, it did mean that like oh, so much of his back catalogue just isn't getting covered. Especially when now it's a bit better because even though the set list is quite static, 2018 he switched back to all all original material. They got and... a, they got a joke in the in the film about how even if he was playing his tunes quite faithfully in 2002 how people still don't know what tune it is and they don't recognize like what song he's playing <laughs> even jack Bate doing it yeah because that's been the received wisdom about dylan for years that since is... the 70s even since yeah. like in the scorsese documentary those songs don't sound anything like the recorded versions he's just yeah, it's showing true. them you know yeah exactly it's just because <laughs> he was young and had loads of energy that people were forgiving of it but like um, <laughs> no that shit rules but no he's he's never just sung the vocal melodies of his songs as on record right. like if you listen to the classic 1966 he's got his vocal mannerisms then for on the live shows from that time it's just they're different he's just like drawing everything out and stuff the arrangements may have been faithful but that doesn't mean bob was Faithful. That just still means the guitar. band, the session musicians, were doing their job. So the film. Should we get back to the film? We've wandered. <laughs> we've wandered far from Dylan. We've drifted far from shore. As he as would he have would wanted. Seem. Long, rambling, digressive. That sounds like Bob to me. That's that is it. <laughs> that is what it's supposed to be. It's a film without a center. Even a Bob Dylan film. It's all about how enigmatic Bob Dylan is. How you can never know Bob Dylan. Whether you're the journalist or the president or Bob Dylan's ex-manager or like an old buddy or Bob Dylan's old mistress who doesn't have that many lines of dialogue in the film. Oh, no, but it's so funny because he cucks his dad. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. They get the great Angela Bassett in and like, does she One have One of America's lines? greatest actors. Yeah, like two or three lines of I mean none of the i guess jessica lang probably has the most to do in this film of the ladies but 
Yeah, Penelope Cruz is in a very thankless role, I think. It's cool to know that Master of Puppets exists in the same alternate universe as Jack Fate, because she's wearing like a Metallica t-shirt. <laughs> That's great. I reckon Metallica will be a band Bob knows as like a cultural signifier, but he do- he doesn't like know their records or anything. They'd probably do an album with him. Maybe he like listens Lars, to Lulu. Lars wants that clout. Lulu, yeah, Lulu's good. Great record. <laughs> yeah, but Angela Bassett, like, yeah, I think she does have a scene where, like, she sits down with Bob and they talk for a minute. But, like, before that, she's seen in flashback where Bob's like, I thought I was doing it for my mother. I thought I was doing it for my country. And it's just, like, this guy shot through, like, I don't know, like, rose-tinted glasses or whatever. But it's just, it's just like, these surreptitious shots of this guy who looks a bit like a young Bob Dylan romancing Angela Bassett uh, and who it turns out is his dad for Saddam Hussein's mistress. I swear it's when he's listening to Tinashe sing the times they are a changer and then he like <laughs> has a vision in his mind he's like hmm that reminds me of the time where like <laughs> I don't know yeah where he cocks his dad. <laughs> it's one of the classic <laughs> cinematic cuckings up there with when Blair gets cucked by the CIA in Roman Polanski's The Ghostwriter. Ah, there's yeah, loads but... of great cuckings in cinema. <laughs> what, what's a good cucking? Fucking, yeah. I don't know, I'm trying to think off the top. That's where I saw something with a good cucking in recently, let me think. Probably this. Obscure Objective <laughs> Desire is a fine, fine cucking, but yeah. I don't know, this, I guess. Yeah, yeah, what a cucking for the ages. So at the start of the film, Jack Fate, played by Bob Dylan, is in prison, and it's just implied that he's just been in prison, like, years and years, and he's just in there looking really scruffy. Oh, God, Bob's band are playing. Larry Campbell's so cool looking is in that, this film, man. Is that other thing where he tried to, like, rebrand as a badass with, I guess, what you're talking about, about the the band photos and the liner notes to Tempest. But it's like, never before was Bob Dylan trying to be hard. You know, man, it's his rough and rowdy ways. Yeah, exactly. he, he, he He does a lot of boxing. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he loves boxing. And he, 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 he sings a lot about killing people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his lyrics these days are so violent. He does always, where he carries the large knives in one of the movies. Yeah, well, that's a cool historical reference, though. That's an Abraham Lincoln thing. Oh, okay. We got into that on the show, man. You've got to keep up with your premium real <laughs> politics. <laughs> but I guess, you know, he does flood the... He mixes it up like true stories and fake stories, like, all the time. Kendrick Lamar has that moment where he's like, if I told you I killed someone, like, would you believe me? And Bob Dylan is like daring you to believe that all the time like on every tune the do you not think Hendrick did kill the guy no I don't I don't necessarily <laughs> think so but I guess he wants you to explore the idea of how your relationship to his music would change if you found out that he did. That's why he had that song on the one of the best albums ever about how, like, oh, if you found out I was a paedophile like Michael Jackson, would you still buy my record? Yeah, so, I remember at the time I was like, ooh, when he started for Michael Jackson stuff. But it, no, strange... it is interesting. <laughs> and, and it's designed to make you uncomfortable as well. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. He is a- asking those questions. Yes. Yeah. And I guess Master Anonymous is designed to make you uncomfortable as well. But yeah. 
you see the real Bob Dylan in, on the big screen, but you still don't know anything about him or like anything close to the truth. You just kind of get a sense of his like his personality and his weird interests and <laughs> quirks. I just got Jeff Bridges and John Goodman facing off. So yeah, this film obviously reunites the two stars of The Big Lebowski, which uh, used a Bob yeah. Dylan song on the soundtrack. From the Man in Me, which is a great song. I think Bob probably, yeah, so he would have seen it because he's a movie buff. They would have asked him to for a song and, you know, he probably wanted to see the film. Um, he might have liked The Big Lebowski, I think. The old cowboy. Oh, the definitely. conspiracy. It's kind of like the music we get these days. Yeah, yeah, I don't, see, I don't think that Bob would, like, automatically watch a film because he's licensed his music to it. I think he might just do it for the money sometimes, but I think probably with a Big Lebowski, he, he just would like it. It just seems up his street, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if he, he was like, totally. hey, can we get a... Can we get Steve Buscemi as well? <laughs> it's disappointing there's no Buscemi in this. But, um, it's true, you but, know. fuck, everyone else is in it. John Goodman's good as his ex-manager. Similar to the role he played in uh, Inside Lewin Davis, I guess. He's sort of washed up in the big big suit. The big uh, Austin Powers-style suit, yeah. this guy is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Did you like the film, said... yeah? Yeah, what do you think, Yaya? Oh, yeah. You've been quiet. Wild stuff, you know. <laughs> I, I, I still am not sure what actually happened in that plot. So, <laughs> something about dictatorships and stuff. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, good question. Yeah, yeah. There's a challenge. Tell us the plot of Master Anonymous without looking at Wikipedia. Um, well... Every actor in the world appears, and then some stuff happens where they say cryptic <laughs> things to each other. Um, <laughs> and there's like some police, uh, uh, and, and and like people get arrested. Lots of police. Arrested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Big, big, big up cops. Yeah, got a, they got a bunch of cops, man. Much like how Bob writes all screenplays on hotel notepads i've just got random scraps of paper with just like writings spouting off in all different directions on it i can't believe that's the way that he put the film together just with the little scraps of paper with different characters larry where can we put uncle sweetheart (laughs) (laughs) why i'm interested in if like is did he and Larry Charles kind of sit down in an office and write it together, like, uh, you know, facing each other or something? Because, like, <laughs> or, or did they kind of send stuff back while Bob was on the road? Because, uh, I mean, I guess there's 365 days in a year. Bob tours for 100 of them. So, well, no, he'll play 100 dates, but he'll be on tour more than 100 days a year, you know? Mm-hmm. So I do wonder about the process, because Larry Charles, he just kind of talks about, like, that mad story about pitching it to HBO. And stuff in in that interview I've heard, and I don't know if in the complete conversation it goes on a bit long. So Val Kilmer appears. Such a good sequence. He goes off on this long, reminding me of some of the, the stuff in the Woody Allen autobiography. <laughs> Actually, just like, oh, I hate humanity. Just this pure like misanthropy. But I about... thought he, I thought he right. was supposed to be definitely the like Bob Dylan in the sixties analog. You know, like the bathe my bird, the man on the street who's like super you know, saying loads of shit, even if it sounds like crazy shit, but like, 
future generations will excise the poetry from what he's saying. Well, he's like an animal wrangler, it says. He's just got all these animals around him. And he says something like, I see a crack in the street as possessing more beauty than any human being. <laughs> when you think of it, real misanthropic stuff. It's like kind of, kind of like overpopulation stuff. Like, you know, humans are killing the planet. We need to let the sheep take over. I think I said that because there was a, just a shot of the sheep in the film. He, he then says to Bob, just after he's going off from his mad rant about how cracks in the earth are better than people. Uh, cracks in the street, sorry. So actually a man-made thing. And mm-hmm. um, Val Kilmer says, you know what I mean? And Bob just pauses and goes, I know what you mean. <laughs> kind of like a curse, isn't it? Being born. <laughs> it, it's funny enough when he says, I know what you mean in response because like when you say you know what I mean generally like it's a rhetorical question but yeah. then he just adds kind of like a curse isn't it being born and it's like <laughs> man whoa <laughs> where did that come from the deepest thing you've ever heard that's a great moment though because Bob Dylan in some of the old the classic interviews he'd always say like oh if you want the truth don't listen to me like listen to like a bum on the street and now you've got like... Listen to a crack in the street. Yeah. A bum on crack in the street. Well, <laughs> and now you have it. Portrayed by the great actor Val Kilmer. Very underrated <laughs> screen presence. Cunt himself. <laughs> but he's, you know, on the surface it seems like bullshit. But he has the like title reveal. And it is one of the more lucid moments. Maybe one of the moments where you get into the heart of what Bob Dylan's trying to say. And he's talking about some deep state shit. He's talking about how they build the hospitals as shrines to the diseases they create. They're... <laughs> <laughs> that's the maddest thing I ever heard. It's before. like, that's what Moth and Anonymous is. It's like That's probably the like the state. kind of shit that, that Bob was thinking in the early 80s when he was on his like, you know, I heard that there's a, there's a place called Iran. And you know, they don't believe in Christ over there. They go, we better nuke them before they nuke us. And by the way, uh, you heard about this homosexuality. And then sings Property of Jesus or I ain't gonna go to hell for anybody. One of Bob's strangest <laughs> things is um, his phrase so hilariously on the Wikipedia page. Infidels album. His lyrics on Infidels betray a strong, strange fear and dislike of space travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exemplified by the lyric on License to Kill, man has created his doom. The first step was touching the moon. Which, by the way, is a song I love. He's right. And basically, that was actually a common belief among evangelicals in the 70s and 80s. Oh, man has invented his doom. First step was touching the moon. During the big evangelical boom in American society that Dylan got caught up in. And so I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. I kind of hate it when people try and reclaim, like, 80s fundamentalist Christian Dylan as like being like wavy or whatever. I heard an interview with Destroyer where he does it. I think it's definitely his worst period. I just wanted to say it. There's highlights. Yeah, I don't sure. Like every grain of sand is one of That's my favorite a, Dylan That is songs. a very fine song. That is the great song from that period. In the time of my confession In the hour of my deepest need when the pool of tears beneath my feet flood every newborn sea. 
I think it's so weird that Lenny Bruce is on one of the Christian albums. And, yeah, when like... they were talking about that on uh, the Michael and Dust podcast recently because he put it back in the set list in 21. Yeah, it, he played it 79 times Why? in 2019. It, he just loves Lenny Bruce, man. <laughs> like, the last, he's just a big fan the last of Lenny, Lenny Bruce. Bruce fan in the world. But, if he'd have fucking given some of his evangelical mates some of those Lenny Bruce books, you know, they would have been like, this is filth. Get out of here. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Certainly. But this is a film that has, like, it gets interrupted, like, halfway through by a broadcast where it's, like, the fake news or, like, the news network in this <laughs> banana republic that the film takes place in, even though it's all shot in LA. <laughs> the Clinton News Network. Food for thought. Right. Um, where it's, like... Guys, they found the secret to the hollow earth. They went 30 miles deep into the earth and all they found was a bunch of sad souls. And this is like on the news. I'm very close to Thomas Pynchon's Mason and Dixon. But also just a totally outrageous moment in a film full of like, this is Bob Dylan really saying his shit, you know. Or making everything out to be as ridiculous as the next thing. Even He's telling us his stuff. truth. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sheer truth yeah, and facts. Yeah, exactly. Shame there's nothing about Kennedy in this. He's film. the new he's the new Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce was bad. He was the brother that you never had. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe there's something like allegorical about Kennedy. I'm just rewinding through the film now. That's what the Jeff Bridges character wants to find out about, though. He plays the really annoying journalist who, I love it, he writes for The Times. I love <laughs> yes. that I'm going to put you on the cover of The Times of London, like, behind the paywall, like, Bob Dylan and Keir Starmer being the... Jeff Bridges' character is so annoying, and I guess Bob Dylan yeah. wrote him that way to be, like, the weatherman or whatever, or just, yeah. like, any journalist that has ever interviewed Bob Dylan. Yeah, Bob doesn't like journalists. But he's asking him about, like, Kennedy and, like, Hendrix and all of these things that happened, like, 40 years ago. Bob Dylan doesn't have answers to that or anything else. No, he's just like, well, you know, just walks off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally, that's his mode. That's, like, the plot of the film. And also, I don't know, it's interesting that that's what he wants to say to journalists. Larry Charles said this thing in the interview I listened to about Master Anonymous. It's only about a 10 minute clip and it is really funny, so go and seek it out. Mm. That Bob is the kind of guy, like, well, I don't know if this is a specific kind of guy so much as Bob Dylan, who, if somebody walks up to him and asks him a question he thinks is stupid, like, you know, something about Woodstock, which mm-hmm. he didn't play, unless it's Woodstock 94, <laughs> maybe he'd be like, hey man, I, I love doing my set at Woodstock 94. <laughs> to be fair, good soundboard recording of that great version of joker man but anyway um, <laughs> oh man there's this hilarious late period live dylan moment in his woodstock 94 performance where he starts it's all over now baby blue and it's just like you know he's playing with the phrasing it's a soft acoustic version uh, he, of course yeah he's not singing the straight up vocal melody but he starts his You must, must leave, leave now, now, take what you need, you think you will think last. last. <laughs> it's just like this death growl on the, wow. on the final, the, on last. 
in the, the first line. Uh, <laughs> it's great. It's like up there with his vocals on the studio version of Pay and Blood. Well, I'm like, I'll bring the lousy <laughs> And like, I love this. I, I, you know, I think he can still sing. I'm not saying he can never sing, but he, obviously it's just the fact that his voice is a very rough thing. <laughs> and sometimes there's just these moments where it's like, wow. What else, like, so how else do they manage to work some of these, like, major, these major actors into this film? So, like, um, Jeff Bridges is the shit-eating asshole journalist, um, portrayed as, you know, a real, like, bottom-feeding journalistic scumbag. Yeah, man, um, he's just asking him the questions that, like, he already knows the answer to anyway. Like, you wouldn't want to hear Bob Dylan answer the questions that he's asking. Yeah. Uh, he gets murdered for it, so serves him right. Seen off. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, and his editor is, is the great Bruce Dern, who, I mean, I feel, I mean, you know, he's kind of phoning it in a bit, but he's having fun. Like, he's delivering this ridiculous dialogue. And like you said, there's only so much these actors can do with this stuff, like, when it's put in their mouths. Because it's, it's it, there's only one man's voice who's supposed to be delivering this stuff right maybe if it was in the context of a song then everyone and their mother would have covered it but as it is this stuff is uh, it feels very much like bob dylan should be saying it for the most part there is some hilarious stylized dialogue at the start when oh yeah okay so i can bring in another weird racial thing about the film here but like john goodman <laughs> is just talking to these two like sinister black soldiers and like all the soldiers and representatives of the establishment in this film are black for some reason yeah just like <laughs> yeah all the, like shady business people are black and i'm like what's this all about I, I, for a film that's like, trying I... to talk about the legacy of slavery and like black music in america where yeah all the militias and like the organized crime syndicates are all black i don't know yeah. but they only they're only there at the start they don't even come back at the end there's the black heavies at the, in the first scene the two menacing guys with sunglasses who are looking at john goodman just kind of staring him out mm-hmm. while he's like you know we're gonna put on the concert and of course the money goes to charity although i intend to siphon off the majority <laughs> of it for the for, for, for my personal kitty for all the fattest uh, cats or whatever yeah yeah, the fattest cat of all, moi, and then they just beat him up. <laughs> really unconvincing. But that is straight like, out see, of a Dylan song, isn't it? It's like the scene in The Irishman where De Niro is quote-unquote kicking the shit out of that guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're actually, their movements look realistic, but just John Goodman's under a desk. <laughs> you can't see him at all while he's being beaten up. This is one of the great five or six scenes that take place in the film before Bob Dylan turns up when you're just sitting there like, what is this film about? Who does Cheech Marin play? Oh, he, yeah, Cheech without Chong. And he's when yeah. Bob Dylan gets out of jail and he's like waiting for the bus. And then Cheech Marin is like, I saw two eagles eating a pregnant rat on the street. <laughs> and then Dylan's like, oh, that sounds like that rat must have done something weird to me. Or something. <laughs> yeah, Bob is just like, wow, okay, that's cool, like, man. That's like Cheech and Chong humor written by Bob Dylan where Dylan is trying. You can imagine Bob <laughs> late at night on the tour bus, you know, he's invited Tony back to the bus, the inner circle. I'm glad Jeff it's Rosen, in this film. <laughs> and, and, and he's just like, right, let's toke up and watch some fucking, watch Up in Smoke, you know? <laughs> <laughs> One for the movie buffs here, Bob's son, Jesse Dylan, his second most famous son, 
directed the Method Man and Red Man starring stoner comedy How High, a dorm room classic. I also love how, like, that time, uh, I was just thinking, yeah, Bob could probably, like, smoke weed while on tour and not get arrested. But he did get arrested that time for, like, snooping around the house where Bruce Springsteen grew up. Yeah. And the cop was this young woman who had no idea about Dylan as a cultural figure. (laughs) And she just arrested him for, like loitering because <laughs> he likes to visit the houses of his favorite singers or whatever neil young um Bob, uh, john lennon yeah but the photo is a hilarious man where he just he does look like you could understand from i hate to say you could understand from the cop's perspective but like you can understand from the cop's <laughs> it doesn't necessarily look like the man who wrote He's a shady old man in a hoodie, or it's like yeah. a, maybe a cagoule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because exactly. it was rainy. But, <laughs> but you shouldn't judge a person by their appearance. Yeah. No, of course not. No, is... they, they profiled Bob, man. Yeah. Just another terrible abuse by the police. Yeah, exactly. Real politics. Real, real politics. 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 Real politics. Real. Giovanni Ribisi has an interesting cameo in the film. His so scene like was when, amazing, man. When Bob gets sprung out of jail, he then gets on the bus and he's like, hey, does this bus take me to such and such? And they're like, no, you're going the wrong way. And he's like, cool. And <laughs> <laughs> just gets on the bus. Uh, and, then, and then, like, yeah, look, I mean, Jessica Lang's in the room with all the executives who are all black. Apart from one, yeah, no, they're, they're just all black. <laughs> I don't get what that's about. I guess what it's, we... are those like the Larry Charles touches in the film? I don't know. I don't know if I... Bob Dylan was like, we got to write this organised crime plot, but like, check it out, they're all black. Maybe it's because these two films have the worst digital cinematography of all time. Right. And because <laughs> right. this film I'm about to mention is set largely in television studio boardrooms. But it feels almost like a uh, reversal of Bamboozled by uh-huh, uh-huh, Yeah, you <laughs> said like, it. What if, what if the establishment were all black people? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But it's a film... Bamboozled is obviously a film about minstrelsy. Do you think Bob Dylan watched Bamboozled and then wrote Martin Anonymous after he watched it? I mean, maybe. <laughs> it, was like, it was like a couple of years before, but they are co- yeah. they're concerned with the same, with similar subject matter. Yeah, no, I'm getting real bamboozled flashbacks. And here, they actually. both have like really visually unpleasant digital cinematography. They really do, Inland Empire level stuff. By the way, there's actually one, maybe two Asian people <laughs> at this table as well. So it's a multiracial boardroom, but mm. they're not all white. No, no, there's a white woman who was just out of shot. Okay. So it's, yeah. it's trying to yeah, say something, isn't it? It's like something. But it's shot in LA, and it takes place in. I initially thought it was supposed to be like Nicaragua or yeah. El Salvador or something like that. But it's America. Yeah. That's why you know Dixie, obviously, mm. playing that. The Giovanni Ribisi cameo. Bob gets on this bus that's taking him to. <laughs> Sorry, I put the film back to the start, and they're just springing Bob out of jail. He's just in there in a beanie hat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's the most squalid cell as well it's just a bunch of guys like crowded into like a life of brian <laughs> kind of prison cell uh, in, a, um, in a proper cave though yeah yeah literally in a cave mm. the guard is like an asian guy i think <laughs> i love it how 
Bob Dylan's character gets busted out of jail for this one concert and then goes immediately back into jail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah, it's just, they, like, mythical. They just take him off at the end. Yeah, he didn't even kill the guy, but he took the rap. So the film ends with who kills who? Jeff Bridges dies, doesn't he? Yeah, Luke Wilson stabs Jeff Bridges on Bob Dylan's behalf. Luke Wilson, he's like, when you first see him, he's a bartender. And then he hears that Jack Fate is back in town. And he's like, God damn, I better get out of here. He says something to the drunk who he's serving. There's like one of the guys in the scene. They can't afford to populate a bar with people. But basically, he's like, no offense, but I'm sure the next guy will come to the same conclusion as well. I guess, like, mm-hmm. just like, you're a loser. <laughs> and he just hands him the entire bottle of whiskey and leaves. And it turns out he's going to get Blind Lemon Jefferson's guitar to give Bob. A crazy element you, in this film. Do you even see Bob play it? Does he play it in, like, the Dixie and Diamond Joe performances, maybe? Because he's got a guitar when he gets sprung out of prison already. But he's just picking out chords. He's not playing those ancient licks. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's it where he gives him Blind Lemon Jefferson's guitar and... His manager hasn't even heard of Blind Lemon Jefferson. Oh, what a phony. It's all Bob Dylan getting off his personal grievances with, like, journalists and the industry. And people think he's a spokesman, he's got something to say. But he's just trying to play music, man. (laughs) Yeah, he just wants to do his thing, tour all the time and just keep moving. We were talking about Luke Wilson. <laughs> Luke Wilson, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still getting work from Dylan after Wes Anderson stopped working with him for whatever reason. Oh. I did I did Google. Why did Wes Anderson stop casting Luke Wilson in films? And there's nothing. Just they stopped working together. Not for us to know. <laughs> he's quite sweet in this film, though. Yeah, he's, sort of you know, he's just a real supporter of Bob, isn't he? He's like the earnest young fans. Oh, doesn't he kill Jeff Bridges with the guitar? Yeah. He, like, snaps the guitar's neck and stabs Jeff Bridges oh. in the face with it. Or, like, in the neck, doesn't he? He destroying, stabs him in the neck with Destroying the, neck. the legacy, destroying a very important object in the history of American music to kill the journalist. <laughs> That's well, man, Bob you Dylan. Know, you got to make sacrifices to, this to machine kill kills, journalists. This machine kills journalists. <laughs> Why didn't Woody Guthrie think of that, man? I guess journalists, fascists, often synonymous. you got the late Chris Penn here, only a few years before he died, as one of the crew guys. No, he's like coming out with like yeah. vulgar yeah. class-first Marxism, where he's like, you know, man, There's it's not about races. race or gender. <laughs> Yeah, there's only one race, the human race. No, what? Do you, yeah, he, he says, says there's two, two races, races, workers and bosses. And then didn't the other guy say, like, I didn't understand this when you told me it yesterday. Again, confusing-ass film with a lot of theory kicking around, but it doesn't matter as much as Bob Dylan singing Dixie just because it's a nice tune. I, I don't think it's just because it's a nice no, tune. No, sure. yeah, There's a great singer. Maybe that, you know, that's why we can enjoy it. Because, because he wants to cover the tune, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That Giovanni Ribisi speech in the film where he's like, yes. oh, I thought I was with the revolutionaries, but then they turned out to just be the same, the government, anyway. So I went back to work for the counter-revolutionaries. Right. It turned out they were just part of the government. And then it turned out that the revolutionaries were running the government. <laughs> it's that's, like... That's pop politics for Bob Dylan, you know. Yeah, it's That's like, why man. he doesn't sing about politics anymore. Because I, yeah, he seems quite alienated from the whole thing. And I guess you would be when you live a life like Bob Dylan. Removed from like people's 
material concerns or whatever. I mean, he's, he talks about, like, rich and poor. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff, although Bob, has, I've never heard him, like, dismiss race in that way, he, he has talked, not in a Marxist sense, but about things all since the end of industrialization in America, shifting right into the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Power of the the buying that. power of the proletariat has gone down. Exactly. He literally put it in a song. He used the word proletariat. I think he, he does think about some of his stuff. There's an evening haze settling over town, starlight by the edge of the creek. The buying power of the proletariat's gone down. Money's getting shallow and weak. I imagine he volunteered. He certainly expressed public support for Obama. He did actually say that was a mistake. He was on stage like the night Obama was inaugurated, and he said, "You know, when I grew up, uh, it was just the start World War Two, you know, and uh, since then I've been living in a land of darkness." I hope now things can change. I mean, he like apparently Tony Garnier was like wearing an Obama pin, and like Bob, I guess, got them to sh- shine a light on it because like there's no fucking screens at his show, so like they can't exactly zoom in. But then apparently in an interview after that, he he was like, oh, you know, I was just uh, shooting my mouth off. They got a little carried away, but um, wow. Then he did perform the only version of the times they are a changing of the 2010s at the White House for Obama. Um, He's on another planet though. He is. He might have the odd, like, politi- express a political view. His, for example, his appalling views on Israel uh, expressed in the song "Neighborhood Bully." But at the same time, they're not necessarily like joined up into a coherent ideology. It's because overall, what what triumphs is his his just his Bob Dylanness. He's just too weird a guy, and he's too used to just being a singular figure in the culture. Right. So you know to be a doctrinaire of anything in particular other than his own strange ethos. Mm. Yeah, I think that is it. The enigma is resistant to political interpretation. Like a couple more points on, I guess, the music of this. I wish that there was more Bob on the soundtrack album because, Mm. like you say, Drifter's Escape appears in the film and what we hear of it sounds really good. I'll Remember You... A song from Empire Burlesque plays out in its entirety. And I mean, Empire Burlesque, there's some good songs on it, but it's a terrible sounding album. The 80s production. That's one of the songs he did with your man Tom Petty, isn't it? No, I, I, I mean, I, I think not so. To my, don't let, I'll, I'll have a look. He definitely wrote it on his own, but Tom Petty and Mike Campbell do play on that album. Mm-hmm. Ben Montench and other heartbreakers. He's not playing um, the hits in this film. It's safe to say. No, he's not. Apparently, Larry Charles just basically like set him up on a soundstage and was like, play whatever you want. Uh, he leaves it to the other people, you know. He's got that Japanese cover of uh, My Back Pages over the opening credits. Oh, he's yeah. got the like Italian rap song that samples like a Rolling Stone. Jerry Garcia appears somewhere, doesn't he, with a version of, I think, Senor, Tales yeah. of Yankee Power. I was hoping Senor would show up in this film based off the context and like the kind of world that he's trying to depict and the Jerry Garcia version knocked yeah, it out of the park. 
Oh, great cover. I mean, John yeah. Garcia. Garcia was an obsessive Dylan fan and would play many of his songs, both with the Grateful Dead and with the Jerry Garcia band. There's Garcia sings Dylan albums, like live compilations out there. Mm-hmm. If, if just for a real, for me, it's a real chilled out listen because I like hearing Jerry play. I like hearing him jam his songs in this long, drawn out, relaxed way. And I love the songs of Bob Dylan, so it's just, you know, it's it, it's a winning combination for me. And Bob does offer a nice little sample of Jerry Garcia's covers of him on this record. No, Tom Petty himself doesn't actually play on Empire Burlesque, although. Mike Campbell, Tom Petty's guitarist and writing partner, does play guitar on uh-huh. on the original version of I'll Remember You. Interestingly, Stu Kimball, who would be in Bob's band like from modern times to 2018, also plays on one track on Empire Burlesque. But there's also a really good version of Standing in the Doorway, which it, a little bit of it, like there's people talking over, but most of the song gets to play out. Sadly, you can't really hear very much of Amazing Grace, which I think is Bob and the Boys singing it a cappella. It's in there, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of in the background, watching the river flow, kind of submerged, good tune. And Dirt Road Blues is actually the only song that Bob has never played live from Time Out of Mind, so it would have been good to get a full version of that. Maybe a bootleg series, he can do like the Mask and Anonymous sessions, mm-hmm. I, I would find that a great listen. Alright, so Standing in the Doorway isn't actually in the film, it's in an alternate scene on the DVD. I've just got it on a bootleg, so I've listened to that version, an edited version of that quite a lot. Knocking on Heaven's Door also features in the supplemental material a kind of real rearrangement. The melody altered quite significantly in a couple of new lyrics and then the band singing harmony on it. There's a version of If You See Her Say Hello, which from the snippet I've heard is actually kind of excruciating, so maybe we're not really missing out much there. And apparently Larry Charles said that they performed all along the watchtower. No, Dylan intended to play all along Watchtower and then at the very last moment decided not to. And the version of Blowing in the Wind you hear over the end credits, which I really like, mm. uh, that was released as a, a like a B-side Bob, and again, like you can find that on bootlegs and stuff online, and I, I like that performance. Other than that, you got Los Lobos playing on a night like this on the album. Good band. It's really weird, because like Bob walks into the bar and there's Los Lobos playing, it's like you can hear them on, the, on like, Simple Twist of Fate, the world's number one and only Jack Fate cover band. But the recording of them is just Los Lobos. Yeah. And then Bob's band are, like, miming to it. <laughs> you got a, a Spanish, I think, version of One More Cup of Coffee. To be honest, I've mainly just listened to the Bob tracks on the soundtrack. Oh, and there's also a Grateful Dead cover of It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. So Double Jerry. Bob is such a big fan of Jerry Garcia and the Dead. Huge influence on the 1990s permutations of the never-ending tour, I think. Bob was kind of the leader of a jam band at that point. Right. I don't really like the Grateful Dead, as we've spoken of before, but I feel like... Yeah, you got to sort that out, man. I'm out of mind where they're layering like loads of guitars over on top of each other, but still just having it low in the mix to illustrate the lyrics as opposed to trying to be some jam band shit. 
that yeah. is a really cool part of Bob Dylan's sound and I think Time Out of Mind like, is a particularly ambitious record, especially compared to Love and Theft. Love and Theft, which they made around exactly the same time as Martin Monument, which is way more bluegrassy and trad, even though it's same like band. a nice hi-fi band playing arrangements that like people in the 50s would have played. When I re-listened to Time Out of Mind recently, what stuck out to me was having listened to so many Bob shows now. I've just been in lockdown, just obsessively consuming any show I can find from a never-ending tour. I'm so used to the idiosyncrasies of Bob's guitar playing now. Like He really played lead guitar on a lot of stuff from in the 90s and early 2000s and when he does strap on a guitar live now it's always to solo not really to bust out any chords or anything sure. listening to time out of mind what struck me was that lenoir always put dylan's guitar at the center of the mix there's always the focus on this really kind of scrappy playing that's surrounded by these just beautifully gifted musicians there's always just this 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 edge added by having again this very idiosyncratic playing right at the center with the again idiosyncratic singing which i guess is what master anonymous is like you've got all these professional actors mm -hmm. acting around bob dylan who can't really act he's just like little man making like little jokes <laughs> His physicality really... is so strange in this. Yeah, yeah, man. Regardless <laughs> just... of like when he kills the guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, even yeah. when he's just like standing around, like his screen presence is so weird. If you compare Wait. it to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, in which he's pretty much silent, but yeah, it's like a, a natural presence. And in this film, where the whole film's like centered around him, everyone's like waiting for him to say the line, and he's like, "Don't, don't look at me. Expect me to say the line or whatever." <laughs> But wait, kill someone? No, but like that, that Luke Wilson like bit where he's like involved in violence. Oh, Dylan punches it's... Jeff Bridges. Yeah, yeah, it's like he just like decks him, and Jeff Bridges is just like hulking over Dylan. Just like you, you're like. I mean, I know, but maybe Jeff Bridges just spends all his time just like pretending he actually literally is the dude and smoking zoots and just chilling. Maybe Bob, uh, a long time boxing fanatic, could <laughs> deck him. But who knows? But it looks so fucking unconvincing. For me, the physically strangest scene is when Bob sits down in a chair in the trailer with John Goodman. He sits down in this big chair and he like disappears into the chair. It's like the chair's like 500 times the size of him and it's just swallowing him into this gaping hole. Yes. And you have the yes. milk. The question is, is thank you. A, a gaping hole in the, it's proper like <laughs> Laurel and Hardy stuff though. That whole like John Goodman is massive and Bob Dylan is tiny. Like, yeah, I think they... the frame is a big part of the film. You're right. Maybe I think that's they what mu the slapstick version of Master Anonymous would have been. They must have been thinking that must have been a big reason why Goodman was the guy who they paired up with Dylan for the most scenes. And you know, John Goodman's a terrific actor. He's always just such a pleasure to be around, whether he's playing a, an obnoxious prick or a real diamond geezer. <laughs> you know, I love John Goodman. And I imagine he and Bob savoured their time with one another. You know, I think both probably with this, there's like, everyone will do it because they want to work with Bob. But I think probably Bob's like a fan of a lot of these people. Mm -hmm. Like like we said earlier, he probably loved The Big Lebowski. Probably thought it was really funny and clever and was touched they used his song. 
Because, like, yeah, people act like he's above everything. But, Bob, he can really be moved by, like, an artist he respects paying tribute to him. Right. And I bet he was loving doing these scenes with these two proper actors who led such a good film. Well, I watched Ronaldo and Clara this week in preparation for the podcast. And I didn't bring it up previously because I don't have much to say about it. I don't think there's that much to say about it as a film. Yeah. But that is extremely amateurish. And Bob is definitely not the main character he doesn't even speak for the first like hour of the film he just has his concert footage like intercut and he's just like walking around so did you watch the whole three hour film yeah yeah because it is available i didn't know it was out there you you can get it you can get it but i wouldn't recommend it because i've seen i think it's just like a kind of edit of all the concert footage from it yeah the concert footage is fine the scorsese film that came out last year is way better for it but it's a confusing non-edited film it makes Martin Anonymous look like there will be blood or something like that in terms of and he directed that didn't he (laughs) it wasn't his directorial debut because he put together a film from footage that D.A. Pennebaker shot called Eat the Document which was was never released because it was apparently shit incoherent (laughs) <laughs> bizarre documentary hard, but, uh, hard to imagine <laughs> I've seen the one scene from it where Dylan and John Lennon are fucking high off their tits in the back of a car Yeah, can't actually remember what <laughs> they're clearly high on in it maybe coke amphetamine. they might just be really high yeah probably amphetamines if it's the 60s with their fog or amphetamines and their pearls that's like the Dylan of don't look back he's just like high on drugs Yeah, <laughs> running around saying crazy shit but the Dylan we get in Ronaldo and Clara is completely different. I guess it's mostly a film about him trying to like rekindle his relationship with John Baez from 10 years before, before he married. Or, or trying to rekindle his relationship with his wife, Sarah. Right, but I think it was when they, because it was after Blood on the Tracks, right, they divorced. Yeah. No, they hadn't yet. They stayed together, actually, for okay. a, year, a year or two after. Because Blood on the Tracks, it was recorded in 74, and they divorced in 76. Right, maybe they were separated. You know that sequence in the Scorsese film where it's just them two talking kind of awkwardly and like unnaturally about when they used to go out in the folk era? Well, that's in Ronaldo and Clara as well. And I don't know, I guess the way that when we were talking about Journey Through the Past by Neil Young, that's like a Goddard (laughs) film. I guess this is like a Rivette film or something. Yeah, (laughs) I'd rather, I prefer Journey Through the Past, I think. Well, that's only our 40 years. So even Tarantula. Have you read it? Well, no, but I've, (laughs) I've had it. I've tried to read it. But I guess that's like a Dylan song in on the page form without the musical yeah. format around it. But Master Anonymous compared to that is very lucid and straightforward, I feel. Yeah, makes sense given what I know about Tarantula. To be honest, I've had a copy of it for years that I've never touched. Well, I mean, I've, I've touched it, but I feel like it's, <laughs> that's about as far as I've gone. I feel like Tarantula is too galaxy brain for my pathetic mind. I'm sure some of those phrases would have made it into very good songs, or maybe some of them did. Who, who knows? Maybe some of them were, like, taken from fucking Henry Timrod, or who was it he was plagiarising? Proust. Right. <laughs> fucking Mark Twain. <laughs> I love that, it's just steal passages from Mark Twain. It's like, yeah, no one's gonna heard of this shit. No one, no one knows this guy. <laughs> 
maybe he just figured, like, yeah, no one's going to have fucking read Proust, man. Like, I guess people just have pretended to read. I bet Emmett's read Proust. I'm trying to read Proust. I never have. I'd love to. Uh, I'll get around to it. Enough. I should have done it this lockdown, <laughs> but maybe next next coronavirus. Hey, man, I'm not... <laughs> next lockdown, I'm yeah. not putting any pressure on you to read Proust. Let the record say that. Uh, there's <laughs> that Monty Python sketch, Summarise Proust, which I'm thinking of now. It's the real, real... I feel like I've really failed to understand what Dylan is trying to say in Martin Anonymous, but it's still yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> I like I like uh, I like Diamond Joe as a traditional song choice. Yeah. It's just you know it's about being a centrist dad. You know, <laughs> Diamond Joe, come and get me. My wife done quit me. My wife done quit me being the operative bit. <laughs> just because I'm at the stage. I think what I like about it is Dylan Extended Universe, you know? It's just a film set in Dylan world, which you don't often get. I feel like I'm Not There by Todd Haynes is kind of set in Dylan world, but it's kind of set in Todd Haynes world as well. Better it's film. A, this is the unfiltered shit. I feel like Larry Charles is just making himself Bob's vessel in this. Like you say, I mean, you said it something earlier, might have been Larry Charles's contribution, but I feel like he was just trying to bring his filmmaking acumen, although I think this is his directorial debut maybe, but he was trying to bring that to provide a resource for Bob. To gain to the make... skills to make Borat. <laughs> Man, I wish... last time I re- A Borat style film oh, starring I... Bob Dylan would have been fire though, I think. Larry Charles's last feature film was Army of One, Saw Nicholas Cage. Haven't seen it. And Russell Brand. Yeah. It's such a disappointment. Nicholas Cage is so annoying in it. That must be his wildest voice since Peggy Sue got married. And Russell Brand plays God in it. And um, <laughs> Matthew Modine appears in it, who previously acted alongside Nicholas Cage in Alan Parker's Birdie in which Cage played the cool jock while Matthew Modine played the weird guy who puts birds on his dick and comes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he does that in the film. I don't know it. I want to see it now. It is kind of good. It's a Vietnam War drama about mm. a guy who gets birds and puts them on his dick and comes. <laughs> I thought that The Dictator was one of Larry Charles's worst films. I mean, I gotta be honest, looking at his discography now, I actually, for me, Mass and Anonymous is probably his second best film after Borat. <laughs> <laughs> this is top tier Larry Charles. I mean, not saying he's not a talented guy because Seinfeld and Curb is a really strong resume. Of course. But, but as a filmmaker. Mass is alright as well, man. You know. Yeah, man. It's not like, so bad. Like, that's it, man. I like spending a bit of time in Dylan world. I like having one of those songs on screen with Bob Dylan music playing and Bob Dylan right there doing his quote-unquote acting (laughs) in his cowboy hat his fucking Stetsons with his diminutive stature and his guitars that he doesn't even play his little pencil moustache Oh, I just, I love him the greatest to ever do it oh that's for sure he's just a completely one-of-a-kind figure and the fact he's such a weirdo is what makes him so cool of course and the fact that he's like a socially awkward guy who has to shield himself from the world just makes him that bit more otherworldly (laughs) and just that more of an icon i thought maybe now i should find my review of it that emmett uncovered on letterbox (laughs) 
because I remember that I wrote one, but I don't remember what I said in it. As I said to you earlier, Jack, it was a really well-written review. Thank you. Yeah, like, I think I said, I think it's going to be all flair, no substance, but I will, just in the interest of self-criticism, dig it up. Now, my latest review of it, I upgraded my mark from one and a half to three stars, added a like of it, and I said, help. I'm at the level of Dylan Obsession where I actually like this. But before that, in 2014, I had said, truly shit movie, <laughs> co-written by and starring Bob Dylan. I'm not going to say it's not truly shit. Shot over two <laughs> days for about as many dollars by Kirby. <laughs> and the- I-, I forgot it was shot over two days. That's crazy. That's <laughs> it's amazing. Not- it's not bad with all that bearing in mind. It's basically a play. The dialogue is stuffed with inane pseudo-profundities, worthiest of the hackiest Dylan copyists. All of us in some way, I-, I quote, are trying to kill time. When it's all said and done, time ends up killing us. <laughs> in retrospect, I just kind of consider, like, I don't know how many of those lines were supposed to be funny. I said, you know one reason why the great man's lyrics work so well? The music accompanies them. Poetry is all about cadence, and Dylan's words sound a hundred times more profound when sung in his unmistakable caterwaul. Nonetheless, I should concentrate on panning this movie rather than starting the old Bob Dylan actually can sing, and is one of the greatest vocalists of all time argument. So uh, clearly I was on to some correct things at that point in time. I won't get into the plot just because it's a fucking mess, it's set in a dystopic nation. I don't think this is that well written. <laughs> it's set in a dystopic nation it looks written. like it's in Central America acts like it's in North America and is presided over by a Saddam Hussein lookalike who is apparently the estranged father of enigmatic rock star Jack Fate Dylan has self-produced his last four albums under the name Jack Frost which implies he perhaps needs to be more creative with his pseudonyms. Fate has been released from prison in order to headline a benefit concert organised by an unscrupulous, lecherous alcoholic. Again, I sound like I'm stigmatising poor alcoholics there. I'd love those cheap pot shots at this time. Of course, some real politic, I'd never throw a cheap pot shot at anybody. <laughs> Played amusingly by John Goodman. Such is the incoherent garbage that constitutes the film's plot that even a reunion of Goodman and his Big Lebowski co-star Jeff Bridges is less entertaining than the hypothetical filmic scenario that played out in my mind as Dylan sprawled on a rather large chair seeming to disappear into it. A Laurel and Hardy style partnership in which Dylan's diminutive stature is contrasted with Goodman's hulking build for maximum slapstick. It would be funnier than the attempts at satire and absurdity that strain to give the comedy drama Masked and Anonymous its laughs. Yeah, see, I think I was unduly harsh there because I do actually think it's funny. (laughs) And if indeed they were billing it as a comedy, then that makes a lot of the stuff that I found kind of funny a lot more excusable. I guess it was supposed to be a comedy at the start. There's a bit where there's like Gandhi and the Pope waiting outside Bob's trailer. Walking around. (laughs) The great and the good want to meet him. (laughs) Just John Goodman brings in a load of like superheroes and the Pope and Gandhi and stuff. Abraham Lincoln and then just sends them out again literally a minute later he's just like right you've seen you now fuck off anyway I say oh my god I use the word filmic twice in two paragraphs 
fucking hell. <laughs> I say this is not a worthy filmic expression of the Bob Dylan mythology. Todd Haynes' modern classic I'm Not There would be a better place to start. I mean, I do still think I'm Not There is better than this. It makes you start to consider that the brilliant imagery and dazzlingly original ideas found in his songs, stripped of musical accompaniment, are a case of the Emperor's new clothes. I'm like, I don't know about that. Oh, then I do clarify this is not true. So it's like, okay, yeah, Dylan is still the man, don't worry. Chronicles Volume 1 and Tarantula display Dylan's aptitude for prose both structured and unstructured. I've never read Tarantula. Why am I pretending I've read Tarantula? You got the gist, though, it's, it's unstructured. And frankly, if you read Idiot Wind off a sheet of paper, it will still send shivers down your spine. I think that's true, it's great, great lyrics. Perhaps the problem is Larry Charles, who works best with a strong collaborator, Bill Maher in Religious. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen in Bo- I, I, I mean, I may say Borat is pretty funny, and obviously Larry David I've mentioned as well. I say he's not enough of a freewheeling visionary director to structure something from Dylan's nascent screenwriting ramblings. Oh, that's so disrespectful. I can't remember. Ramblings. Come on. <laughs> Maybe someone like Paul Thomas Anderson could have brought a live wire attitude to the direction of this pseudo Orwellian joke. I mean, I guess it is influenced by, like, 1984 and stuff, so it wasn't me doing the read some effing all well there. But directors <laughs> of that stature tend to be preoccupied with their own projects. Respectable names nevertheless queued up for Miles to work with a genius like Dylan. Apparently Laura Haring is in this. Did Is she? From yeah, Mulholland Drive? She, yeah, yeah, she's the only person who I mention who isn't on the Wikipedia page, but I can't think who she plays. Maybe I just totally imagined Laura Haring's in it. Um, <laughs> just really good in Mulholland Drive I was just filling in the blanks just inserting her mentally into other films and of course Dylan's shit hot touring group from the early 90s the music Dylan plays is certainly good I suppose choices like Dixieland, that's not the name of the song, it's called Dixie, are related to the narrative of the patriotic benefit concert. Wow, great analysis from me there. But the actors are just human scenery. One of those films where its very existence is puzzling. Oh, that's stupid. I could have just... The genesis of the film is out there for all to know. So... I give this review one and a half stars. Which is, I guess, an improvement on the score you gave it itself. No, that's the same score. Oh, fair enough. One and a half out of five. The film itself, I hope, has gone up in your estimation, though. Yeah, I changed it to three stars it's, there for my, my rewatch. It's a pretty cool film, I think. Yeah, it's one of a kind. They tried. You know, they put the graft in. They, put, they, they tried to push the boat out and they created a unique cultural artifact. Yeah. I might be wrong, but when you were talking about other directors, PTA or whatever, I think Luca Guadagnino recently said that he was going to make a film of Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. Oh, okay, because I heard a film inspired by Blood on the Tracks, mm -hmm. but I didn't know it was specifically maybe that, that Maybe that was it. Which um, is a great story song, but there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, Dylan's story songs don't fully make sense, so... That's the thing, but... though. It's not going to be as good as Master Anonymous for being the pure, pure vision. Look, warts yeah, and exactly. all. Exactly. Can't pronounce his name. But he did, in a bigger splash, he showed a real affinity for the Rolling Stones's post-tattoo you work after their last good album yeah <laughs> it's really strange there's just loads of late period stones in that film i just wanted to say that there's another movie where you can see bob dylan do acting i mean there's a couple there's a 
pretty shit Dennis Hopper film called Catch Fire or Backdraft. It has a couple of different names. Never heard you know, of that. Great cast. Jodie Foster, Hopper himself, Madonna, Catch Fire. Dylan is in it very briefly as a chauffeur. Oh. Uh, Dean Stockwell, our man is in it. Neil Young's friend. Vincent Price, John Turturro, Catherine Keener, Charlie Sheen, Joe Pesci, and playing D.H. Lawrence, the filmmaker Alex Cox. Jesus. Stacked cast. That's another Martin Anonymous. <laughs> Directed by Dennis part. Hopper as Alan Smithy. Oh, and apparently Alex Cox and his partner Todd Davis did uncredited rewrites on the script. So I had no idea about the Alex Cox connection to that film, but I, I love that guy. In that rock, <laughs> punk rock cinema continuum. He's great. Mm. He is a 9-11 truther who thinks Zeitgeist is a good film. No, Loose Change is the one he oh, yeah, yeah, in, okay, yeah, in yeah. his otherwise excellent book, An Introduction to Cinema. A film where you can see Bob Dylan act for more than his brief cameo in Catch Fire Backdraft is a movie called Hearts of Fire. This got me on a little kick watching... Films by the director Richard Marquand. Marquand? Marquand? Mar- Marquand? Any, any ideas, lads? He did, uh... <laughs> he do, like, oh. Return of the Jedi or something. Yeah, I didn't watch that shit. Like, I've never seen... I saw the prequels as a child, yeah. and someone showed me the first one once, and I didn't really concentrate that much. But no, I didn't watch that one. I watched The Eye of the Needle, where Donald Sutherland plays a murderous fascist, which gave me some ideas for Gapecast. And I watched Jagged Edge, which I mentioned with Yair. It's a hacky courtroom drama <coughs> written by Joe Esterhaz and starring Jeff Bridges, bringing it back to Masculine Anonymous. We mentioned Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. He's in it, and he doesn't make the film worse. Good film. But he's not exactly good in it. I love it. Tunes are good. My favorite films. Bob did do the soundtrack for that film, largely instrumental. But there's, of course, the classic "Knocking on Heaven's Door" plus "Billy," which have some lyrics for that. Various versions of "Billy." So, "Hearts of Fire" from 1987 is regarded as the film that killed Richard Marquand. Quand, Quand. He died of a stroke the same year this film came out. I thought Um, you meant in a metaphorical sense. It was originally written by Scott Richardson, and then, presumably because Marquand had worked with him on Jagged Edge, rewritten by Basic Instinct writer Joe Esterhaz, my man. To be fair, I was saying on me and Yaya's last recording, Joe Esterhaz is a hack, but he's written two Paul Verhoeven films and two Costa Gavras films, and it's like... What the fuck have you done, mate? <laughs> Just saying that to myself. Um, and he also wrote Heaven and Mel. But yeah, Richard Marquand basically made this film with a baby writer, the original writer of the film, he was he was called. Not experienced enough to take... An adult baby, right? Not experienced enough to take on the responsibility of a starring vehicle for a rock icon of Dylan's stature. So they got Joe Astahaz in, and they announced the adult baby takeover is off. Good night, or what? Anyway, the film was shot in Canada, who cares? It's a weird film, because Bob is in it for most of the early sections of the film and he's kind of great like he's not good but he's likable and charming and you can kind of say it seems unlikely that a rock star character would be so kind of awkward and shifty and out of place until you think 
oh no, but Bob Dylan's a bit like that. Right. <laughs> so all his discomfort in the role just feels more authentically like this very real rock star who we know, who happens to be playing the character. So Dylan's cultural resonance does the heavy lifting, and every scene where he's trying to be a normal guy, like with a will-they-won't-they relationship, or being kind of mentor to this character played by the actress Fiona, who, his surname is Flanagan, but at the time she was known simply as Fiona. The one Uh, name... Oh man, I feel bad for Fiona because this is the top thing on her Wikipedia. Best known as the love interest in the 1987 Bob Dylan vehicle, Hearts of Fire. (laughs) So it wasn't like this was just a stepping stone to success for poor Fiona. She was more of a musician than an actor by the looks of it. But this film is kind of fun for the first 45 minutes and then the last bit of it just sucks because like Bob gets totally cucked by Rupert Everett, who I mean I think is an interesting actor, an interesting guy generally, but he's not very good in this film as a kind of magnetic, I guess, let's dance here, a David Bowie style figure. She just goes off with him and Bob is just like, hey, hey man, I thought you'd like me, and he just throws a strop because this much younger woman has gone off with this more age-appropriate rock star. He's like, Bowie, let's dance here if he was as young as Bowie was when he did like Ziggy Stardust. Then the film is just shit. You really are just like, wait, hang on, this has exactly the same plot as A Star Is Born in every single way. What the fuck? Now that you've taken away Bob Dylan, there is literally no reason to watch this film and then Bob reappears towards the end and he plays Fiona a nice little acoustic song in a barn and that's basically it that's kind of a film and it's just like why did you need Rupert Everett just give us a whole film of Bob just bumbling about and being adorable it sounds like a mad movie He's not like the hard and hard man of, of, of uh, 2002 Bob in Mass and Anonymous, you know, right. with his rough and rowdy ways and his boxing and, you know, uh, how he'll pay in blood and, but not his own. It's a real, like, vulnerable Bob who was just going, as we know now, going through a really shit time in his life and he was probably just massively addicted to cocaine and drinking too much. And so he's just kind of, like, sweet. Well, I've been down more roads than you, babe, and that's all. Now I'm tired of running while you're only learning to crawl. You're heading somewhere, but I've been that somewhere. Found it's nowhere at all. And I picked up. Although actually this is less sweet, there's a performance, well I say performance, from like 1987 he was presenting the great songwriter Gordon Lightfoot with an award at the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and apparently Gordon Lightfoot for years he said I will only accept this award if Bob Dylan presents it to me and eventually Bob Dylan did come to present it to him and I have never seen a man on so much cocaine like not even it's gone past (laughs) the point of like him being really animated and just full of himself and just chatting away at a million miles an hour it's got he's just glazed eyed and like uh, (laughs) probably drunk as well and just a zombie he comes up on stage he like shambles up he can't find his fucking way 
way to like where he's supposed to be on stage and he's just like Gordon Lightfoot is good and he just walks off again he like says one thing me to be here give this award to Gordon I've known Gordon for a long time and uh, I know he's been offered this award before but he hasn't ever accepted it because uh, he wanted me to come and give it to him so uh, anyway he's somebody of uh, rare talent and all that and here's a video clip now of his uh, recent and not so recent achievements Right, here he is now, Gordon Lightfoot. And Gordon Lightfoot looks so pissed off, as you would be. I mean, I'd be grateful if absolutely fucked up Dylan shambled on stage to say a single word of praise for me, to be honest. But I haven't got quite the achievements under my belt that Gordon Lightfoot has to merit <laughs> expecting anything. He's got some fantastic songs, and Dylan early covered them. Rain. In the early morning rain I think so. Even. You you will probably know Neil's version of Early Morning Rain on A Letter Home. Oh yeah, and If I Could Change Your Mind as well. Oh, that's okay. That's Great my favourite Gordon Lightfoot song. But, Neil, um, again, Neil showed it to me. Well, <laughs> Neil taught it to me personally. Now it's on that same Neil. Yeah, yeah. So it's a lovely song. Beautiful, beautiful song. To have the YouTube legacy of classic fucked up rock star clips is some sort of yeah. legacy. <laughs> there should be a film documenting Dylan's lost years, just all his worst television appearances and stuff, like when he played a version of Masters of War at the Grammys, it's like, just like, the Masters of War! The band just hammering, it's almost punk rock, the band is just hammering out this like barely discernible melody, he's like, I like you to I'll, I'll piss on your grave, whatever the lyrics of that song are. There is like a line about like, I hope all of you die, and I'll yeah, <laughs> spit yeah. on your grave or something. Not piss, not literally the uh, Kanye West Travis Scott collaboration. Oh, shit piss on your grave. Piss on your grave. I kind of like that song, but Piss in Your Grave. I've the We Are The World clip is circulated oh, a lot, man. I feel. I got in, I got a load of heat from people because I, I I commented on that many years ago on the YouTube clip like wow such a welcome relief to hear Dylan's distinctive vocal tones next to all these clean voiced muppets I remember using the phrase clean voiced muppets and people are like what the fuck are you talking about Dylan's singing's terrible on this and I was like I'll take Dylan over I mean fuck there's lots of great people whose best work I enjoy and we are the world but. You know, some people who I'll take a bad Dylan performance over any day, to be honest. You're both right, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've been going for a while. Have we have we got anything else that we want to touch on in these long and wasted years to quote someone Tempest, Bob's last album? I mean, yeah, yeah go ahead, please, if I'm like, jump in the gun. I don't have much to say. No, go, go ahead. If we are recording on Bob Dylan's birthday, I still have nothing but praise for the man. Even if this is somewhat of a misguided creative project, the stand, like me and you, will still enjoy it. This came out of a pretty cool period where he also made the theme time radio hour and Love and Death and his autobiography. I think they all came out in the same year. 
Team Time was 2006, so that was more of oh, okay, that was a little bit later. Yeah. But if you think about it, he did Love and Theft, then he did this film, then he did Chronicles, then he did Modern Times and Theme Time Radio Hour. So it is all very much one kind of. Uh, what a time to be a Dylan fan. And I know. Uh, he was killing it. And then topped it off with Bootleg Series Volume 8 <laughs> in 2008 that collects these amazing recordings from Oh Mercy through to modern times. So that whole period of his work. For me, it actually stands up as the greatest period of his work. I, no, I mean, I, I don't know if I can say that because the thing is that the 60s recordings defined what popular music is today. You literally, I can make a contrarian case for how I prefer cross the green mountain to desolation row but that's a stupid example because i actually don't i love both of those songs but desolation row just that era of his music it really is peerless because he was an adventurer to new frontiers in popular culture he was bringing in stuff that was outside of popular culture uh, that was much more old-timey he was bringing in his own wild surreal ideas he was bringing in influences from literature yeah. check out his nobel prize acceptance speech if you want to hear bob's really articulate thoughts on moby dick all quiet on the western front and i forgot this but it is actually homer's odyssey but bob dylan is a smorgasbord of influences and of course he is derivative in many ways a lot of the time and he is a plagiarist but the fact for me one of the interesting things is the fact that he brings together stuff from so many sources he is just such an intellectually curious person who constantly seems to be exploring i mentioned cross the green mountain it's a song he made in 2002 with the band that are featured in this film and oh sorry it's just the scene where bob cucked his dad and uh, <laughs> the security guys just throw, throw him out <laughs> threw him down the stairs and yeah, yeah. anyway across the green mountain, mountain it's an eight minute epic with the classic the 2002 era band plus Heaven ben montench from the heartbreakers playing wonderful organ on it. it's this eight minute odyssey of the Civil War, the American Something Civil War. And it was made for a film that was a kind of passion project for the oligarch Ted Turner, who uh, had basically produced these lengthy TV movies about the Civil War. I'm told that they're rubbish, and of course I would not be surprised if a rich man's vanity project is rubbish. Unlike Mast and Anonymous, which is a really good rich man's vanity project. But Bob made this song, and apparently what he did was he'd spend days and days just kind of he'd go down to the New York public library and he just sit there going through the historical records and finding things to incorporate into this really lengthy lyric and given the way he writes i imagine an eight minute song probably had too many verses to count you know in its original form because i think he whittles stuff down a lot he'll write a lot and then cut it to the bone and yeah i don't know so mast and anonymous it feels like it's of a piece with not just the album Love and Theft, but Dylan's philosophy of Love and Theft that he would take forward as to its natural conclusion in this era. He's reconciling his position in the American Songbook. I guess in a way he was doing that with the Sinatra covers as well that he went on to do. And talking about the real blues music in this film, it's him putting himself in that context which is a pretty noble thing and an interesting thing, I guess, with the plagiarism uh, absolutely. with that book. I don't know. It's a confusing film, 
He's a confusing man. You want to listen to these songs like hundreds of times over. I guess he wants you to watch Master Anonymous a hundred times over too. Well, I mean, I've seen it uh, two and a half times now. Yeah. <laughs> Not as many times as I've listened to some of his songs, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've certainly put in, I was going to say the hours, but a couple of hours <laughs> at least. I've put in, if the film's, what, an hour forty. Five or something, then I've put in at least three hours to Mastin Anonymous, and I've put in a lot more time with the soundtrack because those four Dylan cuts really, uh, really hit the spot for me, as well as the excellent Jerry Garcia music. It's nice, man. It's a vibe. It's better than Hearts of Fire. Sorry, Richard Mark, and <laughs> you, you did die in vain. <laughs> as sad as it is to say. No, 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 no. Those, those scenes with Bob in Hearts of Fire make uh, a sad, you know, make the tragic sacrifice of Richard Markham worth it, I think. But no. <laughs> I need to dig myself out of this hole. Where I'm... It's for the completed. It's not going to go is. anywhere. It's for the person who has Ian Bell's Time Out of Mind, The Lives of Bob Dylan. The Bob Dylan Encyclopedia by Michael Gray. One More Night, Bob Dylan's Never Ending Tour by Andrew Muir, and Bob Dylan The Lyrics 1961 to 2012, stacked in an enormous pile on the desk in front of them. Jeez. That's not all the Dylan books I own, it's just the massive tomes that I thought might help with this conversation. I've got his Nobel Prize speech as a little book, which is selling on Amazon for $2.99. I have got Chronicles, obviously, I've got Tarantula, I've got a book of his lyrics from the 70s that's kind of falling apart, I've got, well, it's on loan from Emmett, but I've got Why Bob Dylan Matters. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> um, good. He's the gold. He's been written about so much, what is there to say about him? Imagine doing a long podcasting session on this guy or something. It's, it's more than Neil Young and Dewey Cox combined. <laughs> I love that. If Iggy Pop is the Methuselah... No, I can't remember the quote. But yeah, Bob Dylan. I mean, Cox only uh, touched some of Dylan's different style <coughs> and flavours. So I just wanted to say, so it's Bob's birthday today. Happy birthday, Bob. I'm sorry that you're not out on the road. If you're listening, that is. Bob famously loves consuming any and all media about himself. But yeah, happy birthday, <laughs> Bob. You've given us all so much. Like I say, I'm really sorry that you're not out on the road because I know that touring is what, what gives you a sense of purpose and you love doing it. But... I'm so excited for rough and rowdy ways. I'm almost feeding my Dylan obsession, just desperately adding more and more to it, just just getting deeper and deeper in, just so that I'm not lost interest by the time rough and rowdy ways comes out. There's still time, a chance I could get burnt out, especially because Neil Young's Homegrown comes out on literally the same fucking day on the same day rough and rowdy ways they are i'm gonna roll up a couple of large ass zoos let's go for a walk and listen to those goddamn records one after the other rough and rowdy ways is going to be legendary the way it's been prefaced with these brilliant singles i'm so excited i'm more excited for this bob dylan album than anything by any more current musicians of like forthcoming music it's so yeah, exciting definitely. he's writing such interesting shit if he was to come out with a weird film with a bunch of cameos tomorrow or like when the cinema is open 
I would go and see his face 60 feet writ large, even though his screen presence is weird as we've explored today. So goddamn weird. I want to see more live footage of him. I want the case to be made for what a good live performer he is. We need those big screens, because for big screens being there means that someone's filming the concert and then you can take what they filmed afterwards and put it... I did actually hear that apparently last year Bob was doing something or other and a film crew was present, so God knows if that's a video for the album well, or what. But I'd love to see a never-ending tour concert movie. 30 years in the making. Yeah. It was great when Murder Most Foul just popped up out of nowhere. It's like, what? He's here for the conspiracy theory. I know, eight years. Yeah, man, I mean, it's just like, I guess absence does make the heart grow fonder because, yeah, I'm so pumped for Rough and Rowdy Ways with its terrible album art and everything. Wouldn't want it any other way. Nah, nah, nah. Right, should we call it a night then? We've got pretty deep into Maston Anonymous, various Bob Law, and all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah. Minstrelsy. I'm exhausted. It was serious though. Yeah. Bob Dylan doesn't have the answers. He just wants to bounce back. Well, you know, well, you know they're they're, what, they're blowing somewhere, aren't they? Mm. <laughs> In the rain. <laughs> to his eyes. 